bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this fantastic privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for providing us with said faith by grace. Thank you for revealing to us in time the essence of yourself, how you were manifest even in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have a relationship with you. Father, thank you so much for leaving us here on earth after salvation to sanctify us, to in some small way maybe bring glory to you. Also for the ability to evangelize those that are still lost in this world, Father, with the only truth that matters. Thank you for reminding us of our purpose here on earth. We pray for those that can't be with us from the congregation, of course, and we pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality, to cancel out that debt. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is good and who gets to define it? That is the crux, if you would, of our lessons as of late. This is part four of our series, a new series that we're on. Uh, I was doing a lot of sort of introspection this morning. He had me up early for, I think it was like 4.30 this morning. and um, He just had me thinking about a lot of things and um, a lot of the elements of what's been coming from the pulpit, how he's again, weaving them together for us and um, making tremendous sense in uh, very, I guess I'd call it vibrant ways, um, really enlightening ways, ways that truly set us free. One of the principles that he's been really pressing into my soul as of late is this basic principle. Now, just stop. I know you already know this, but really think about just the title. God never fails. Just Put that into perspective. We all fail, right? Every person we have ever met has failed. And we fail miserably all the time. It's something, if we're really good at anything, <laughs> let's face it, we like to brag about, oh, I could throw a football 600 yards. Like, oh, what's the guy's name again? Uncle. Uncle Rico. Right? I can throw a football 300 yards. Nobody can do that that I know of. But I can run really fast or I'm really smart at math or I'm all these things. Yeah, but you fail miserably every single day. That's our context, right? That's the context that we know and live with. We call it ourselves. And then everybody else is colliding with us. And they're failing miserable. And we can't get out of each other's ways. And God never fails. So just put that in context. It's like, you know, it's like this shoop. You know what I mean? Like everything is jumping. Then it's, then it's laser focused. God never fails. So if you're going to attach yourself or cling to anything, um, cling to this. God never fails. So think about this. If his intention is to reveal himself to his creatures, that is what the Bible says, then you know what? God reveals himself to his creatures, period. That's it. No man has ever not known of his existence. 
Romans 1.20. Otherwise, he would be unjust in sentencing them to the lake of fire. And it's beyond that. But let's just keep it basic. God never fails. If his intention is to reveal himself to his creatures, because that's what the Bible says, then you know what? He does it. He reveals himself to his creatures, period. No man has ever not known of his existence. Romans 1.20 That's something the Spirit's been driving home in our lessons as of late, and it's been also awesome to see because he's simultaneously reminding us through other forms of grace, other forms of giving, because that's what grace is, right? It gives. It's motivated by his love, and it continually gives to us. So his other avenues, if you would, of giving to us, which we call grace, have been simultaneously given at these same times through blogs and little sidebars and our lessons, specifically or particularly that the Bible is without error. This hasn't been our main topic, but you notice he's been inserting it almost every chance he gets into the blogs especially, but also into our lessons, that the Bible is without error. So there's this idea of the inerrant word. The Bible is, with emphasis on is, is the word of God. It must be taken for exactly that, nothing less. As soon as man tries to reduce its perfectness, it is no longer the inspired word by definition, but rather something pliable. You see, as soon as someone says, well, that was written by mere men, as soon as they don't or they discount the fact that he inspired it, as it says, as it is self-authenticating, as soon as they do that, then it's pliable. It's no longer iron cast. It's no longer set in stone. It's, it's no longer cemented as from the sovereign of the universe. I mean, then where does that leave you? Just think about what that does to the individual. If this doesn't hold water, what do we have? Where does that leave us? If this is not the word of God, every last bit of it, every jot and tittle, as Jesus would say, if this is not the word of God, where does that leave us? That scares the crap out of me. I need this to be the word of God. I need this to be inerrant. And I'm not saying that I'm saying it's inerrant because I need it. I'm thanking God that it is. And that he's convinced me of it. And that he's given me faith in that very fact. And I weep, literally, over people who deny it. Because without that, I don't know what you're going to believe in. Because we just all agreed and had a good chuckle. We all fail miserably every day. And so does everybody else. But there's one shining star. One place we can always go to that's without fail, that has no error whatsoever. And that's the Word of God. So think of it that way. The Bible is the very Word of God. As if God was speaking to us. That's His voice. So it must be taken for exactly that, nothing less. As soon as man tries to reduce its perfectness, it is no longer the inspired word by definition, but rather something pliable. Hebrews 13.8 says this. Remember John 1 says that Jesus Christ is the word. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
That means that this is the mind of Christ. We are given the mind of Christ. That mind has never changed, and it's not about to change. It hasn't changed before human history. It's not going to change forever and ever. So once we understand and accept that the Bible is the very Word of God, and that it is the final authority on all things, then and only then can we press on with full assurance of faith even. I mean, our faith is vapid without substance if this isn't what it says it is. What are we convicted by if this is just, what, man's opinion of God? And for the sake of completeness, think about the alternative and the nature of God's will for His children up here on the board. Again, more on the inerrant word. This has been an emphasis in our studies. Do you really think that, the, that God would give us His word? Just put this in perspective. This is the other side. This is the challenge. Do you really think God would give us His word, demand obedience to it, and then turn around and say, well, good luck with that because it's only man's estimation of my will. Well, that's cruel. That's cruelty. And that's not God. God is love. God's not interested in duping us with the Bible, saying, I need you to be obedient to this thing, but by the way, <laughs> good luck because I let man do it. I let man author this thing. Good luck with it. Good luck trying to figure out what I'm really looking for, what I really am laying down in terms of my law, in terms of salvation even. Why do you think so many people have a heyday with saying, oh, well, that's not the, you know, I'm going to change the gospel a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you're really a good person. Just keep on being good and you'll kind of make your way to heaven. Um, those are lies. Imagine if God did that, if this was really from human authors. We'd be in a world of trouble. I don't know where our faith would be. So do you really think that God would give us his word, demand obedience to it, and then turn around and say, well, good luck with that because it's only man's estimation of my will? That would be cruel, something God isn't. God is love. So when we step back and continue to see exactly why and how the Spirit's teaching us to see what I affectionately call the big picture. He's been doing this with us for years now. Big picture, big picture. How does this all fit? Not every, I mean, come on, we're humans, right? Are we not humans? You think we really know everything in the Bible? We could be here for another thousand years. I know for a fact I wouldn't. I wouldn't know everything in this Bible. I could be here probably for another 2,000 years, and I still wouldn't know everything in the Bible. And God's okay with that. He needs you to know the big things. He needs you to understand the gospel. He needs to understand His will. So when we step back and continue to see exactly why and how the Spirit's teaching us to see the big picture, we realize that He's establishing key fundamentals in our souls. Here's an analogy I gave Sean, my son, the other day. Most Christians know and live by doctrines that are like colors, green and orange and purple. 
Most Christians know and live by doctrines that are light colors, green, orange, and purple. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with those colors. However, what the Spirit's been teaching this congregation is equivalent to red, blue, and yellow. And if you know your color pinwheel from like grade school, those are your primaries. I gave you secondaries. He's been teaching us the primary colors. So let me explain this. He's teaching us to see and trust primary colors, such as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of the Holy Bible, the sovereignty of God. Think about it this way. God, not man, God has set the primary colors in this universe. God has set the primary colors in this universe. And they existed long before mankind even did. Because they are perfect and true, they are the most vibrant of colors, simple and pure. Now, just to extend this analogy for the sake of clarity, if I go down to Home Depot tomorrow, grab you know, one bucket each of the primary colors and stop mixing them, and then you do the same the day after, chances are that we're going to have slightly different shades of green, orange, and purple. Why? Because there's no telling what shade of red, yellow, and blue we chose independently. Have you been to Home Depot lately? There's an entire rack of blue. Which one's blue? They're all blue. Well, you're going to go, I like this one, right? Or maybe you don't talk like that. <laughs> I hope you don't. Not in Home Depot anyways. Not if you're a dude. I like this red or I like this yellow. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is simple. Unless you have the purest primary colors from the exact same batch and source, no color combination thereafter will be consistent from person to person. It's impossible. So it is absolutely critical that we all agree upon a single standard for our quote, primary colors, so that any mixtures thereafter are consistently reproduced, regardless of who's doing the mixing. As we've unraveled in the past and our own experiences, we know that fundamentally, for example, of primary example, if you have the gospel skewed even a little bit, a little bit's overshadowed, a little bit's overhighlighted. A little bit's tinted this way and a little bit's dulled that way. That's how you get different shades of red, you see. But we want God's red. We want this red. We want what God says, not what man thinks about the gospel, not what he wants the gospel to be, so more people can fit through the narrow gate so they can shoehorn their uncle and their loved ones through the narrow gate. We don't want that. We want the truth. What's red? God says, this is red. This is my gospel. End of story. And if you're going to add, if you're going to synthesize anything else in this, in this wonderful work of mine on top of that gospel, you better use pure red. Not pink. Not some, I don't know, weird color. Red. My red. 
So as we've learned in the past, fundamentally, firsthand, if we have the gospel skewed, every other doctrine is tainted. If you have the core element in the Bible itself skewed, then every other doctrine is tainted because every other doctrine has to accommodate. Do you understand? Whatever's missing or falsely added to that primary color. So every other doctrine is tainted, including secondary or what we might call synthesized doctrines, such as dispensationalism or sanctification even. Things that ride or piggyback on the fundamental tenets of our faith. So to put this analogy to rest, purity begins with inerrancy. That's why he's weaving in the inerrancy of the Word of God, along with these lessons. The inerrant Word of God gives us our primary colors. It also ensures us that any secondary, tertiary, and so on, colors are consistently synthesized from person to person. If we doubt the primaries, we will never unify. You see, that's what the church is trying to do. You, you see this whole idea of the ecumenical church movement, right? It's because, listen, nobody wants to give up on their shade of red. So they just relax it all. They relax the requirements. They relax the sovereignty of God. And they put away and they make way for other shades. So they, the counterfeit unification of the church is that you can believe what you want to believe, you can believe what you want to believe, and you can believe what you want to believe, and we'll all get together. That's a counterfeit unity. That's a counterfeit it looks like it because everybody's saying, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian too. La, la, la. Ain't that wonderful? We're all Christians. Just because you have a shirt with a cross on it says, I am a Christian, doesn't mean anything. The Lord could say to you, I never knew you. But Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Get away from me. I never knew you. But I got the shirt. I can see that. But I don't know you. That's what the church is trying to do, unify in a counterfeit manner. Forget about the primaries. Go to Ephesians 4.11. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.11. It's impossible to unify if, you don't, if your primary colors are hack. Let me put it that way. Ephesians 4.11. <clears throat> Satan knows this, so he tries to unify on other fronts, counterfeit fronts. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, you see there's a goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, up here on the board, what is that speaking to? Do you see unity there? Do you see the fullness of Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, 
The inerrant word of God gives us our primary colors. It also ensures that us that any secondary, tertiary, and so on, colors are consistently synthesized from person to person. If we doubt the primaries, we will never unify. So in other words, you've got to get the primaries right, the, the fundamentals in your life correct. And the only place you can go is the only place you can trust for such things. How many people, if you were to go to the mall right now and say, what do you say of God? And you asked 100 people, chances are there's probably going to be about 100 people or 100 different answers. Maybe you get five that are similar. Maybe. Because everybody has their own idea of who and what God is. But it has nothing to do with this. I mean, who's God say he is? That's what I care about. Even if he's not the God that I quote-unquote hoped he'd be, do you know what I'm saying? Even if he's not the God that I quote-unquote dreamed he'd be or, or, you know, or want him to be for the sake of myself and maybe even loved ones. Because, I mean, let's face it, who wants to hear about a loved one going to hell? Who wants to hear that? I don't want to hear that. It breaks my heart. So, you know, like my flesh is like, just like bend the rules. You just like bend it a little bit. No. Like, are you kidding me? This is what I gave you what the truth is. If someone denies that, it doesn't matter if someone can resurrect in front of them. They didn't believe the prophets, right? The teachers. And then just look at the results of being able to hang our hats on the inerrancy of the word of God. Look at verse 14. As a result, thank God, right? As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You cannot unify that way unless you have something rock solid Unless this is what it says it is, the truth. You can't unify because everybody's going to have a different opinion. Everybody starts with different primary colors and they end up with something that looks like purple but more like fuchsia. Or something that looks like, I don't know, green but maybe it's paler. Or who knows? We end up all over the map. But we don't have the right to add or subtract, that's Deuteronomy 4 too, to the word, and we certainly don't have a right to misrepresent God. When we all trust in the inerrancy of the word, we are bound closer together, as Solomon would say. Go to Ecclesiastes 4.9. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. Embrace it wholly. Love it. Love the idea. Love the fact that you are able to unified on something that has never changed. That is the Word of God. It has never changed. Ecclesiastes 4.9 Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, 
excuse me, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. That's the beauty of being unified in the body of Christ. We are built up together to the fullness of Christ. And we have strength in that. We have resolution in that. But what if this is wrong? What just happened to our strength and our resolution? We go our separate ways. We didn't unify. Because you have one opinion and I have a different opinion and this person has a different opinion. And it's like, no, God does, God's not interested in our opinions. He wants you to know his opinion. That's it. Again, when we all trust in the inerrancy of the word, we are bound closer together. And we call that unity, with the impetus, of course, being love. When we all meet at the word, we meet at love. For God is love. 1 John 4, 8. More on the inerrant word. When you fully accept that the Bible is the perfect expression of God, who cannot lie, and whose will is to justify, sanctify, and glorify you, your faith becomes like the author and perfectors. Hebrews 12, 2. Rock solid. Again, when you fully accept that the Bible is the perfect expression of God, who cannot lie and whose will is to justify, sanctify, and glorify you, your faith becomes like the authors and perfectors. In Hebrews 12, 2, that's Jesus, of course. Like, not perfect. Rock solid, though. So, take all that and... Let's take it back to our message titles. What is good then? And who gets to define it? Well, listen. If this isn't the bedrock of your faith, if you're not going to... It's one thing, look. It's one thing to say, um, I know there's good to be learned. I know, I know at least where to learn it from. And you just don't know it. That's one thing. That's what a humble person would say. I just don't know it all yet. None of us really do. But it's another thing to say, I don't even trust this. Where does that take you? How are you going to learn what good is? If this is no longer the bedrock of your faith, if this is not the place that you turn to, that's all authoritative in your life, where do you go? What are you going to do, call mommy? Hey, mom, what do you think good is? You're going to call your friend, you're going to daddy? Hey, dad, what do you say good is? Dad could be a moron. Mom could be a moron. Oh, how dare you say that? My mom's a sweetheart. Maybe she is by world standards, but who knows? So we need to get back to what is good and who gets to define it. <clears throat> We've already seen our answer several times now. God is good. How do I know that? The Bible says it. God knows good. How do I know that? The Bible says it. See, now we're getting somewhere. Now we have a little momentum. See? If we're looking for what is good and who gets to define it, if we can agree this is our starting point in the, the, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the start and the finish of our definition, then we have a place to go. But if you doubt that or you're doubting its um, author, 
attributing authorship to mere men that were unbridled, uninspired, so to speak, just sort of wrote, you know, what they felt like writing, what they thought about God, then you've got, you and I can't unify. So we looked at the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, and we noted that God deemed all of it very good. We read uh, most of Genesis 1. Actually, I think we read all of it. Uh, but this is Genesis 1.31, part A. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we know right from the outset that God's creation, from his perspective, was very good. And then God made the man and the woman, who only knew good until the fall in the garden. They only knew good. That's all they knew. They were in perfect environment, in a very good environment, as God described it. And they only knew good. And they were made after the image of God, so they were good. So everything was good. And that's all they knew until the fall. So looking back, we are at least able to understand and compare what it must have been like for the first human beings who lived in perfect fellowship with our Lord. I mean, we can sort of dream about it. We can imagine it. We'll never fully grasp it. Not now. We won't get that until heaven. But we can get glimpses of it. If we're seeking the answer to what is good, then we needn't go any further than the first book in the inspired, inerrant Word of God. That's a perfect place to start. God created it, created us, and said, this is good. So we know what good looks like, and we know what a good God does. Our good God does. As a side note, again, we see the beauty and security of clinging to something perfect as opposed to the insecurity of doubting. The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. Just put that in perspective. God's perfect. The Word of God is perfect. The beauty of it is that you can trust it. There's nobody else and really nothing else you can trust in this world except Him. I mean, who are you going to trust? You, oh, my spouse. Oh, <laughs> That's actually kind of funny, right? I'll just go right to the, you know, because people have like these, you know, like onion rings. It's like, well, this person I can't really trust. This person a little more. This person, this person is so trustworthy. No, they, no. They've lied to your face numerous times, countless times. Probably this last week alone. And they're probably going to keep lying to your face or keep, you know what I'm saying. They're not perfect. They're not supposed, they're not supposed to be perfect. They're, they're, they're awful failures just like you are. But the beauty about God is that he's perfect. And because of perfection, you can trust it, even if you disagree with it. He's so perfect and so open about himself that you can trust everything that he says. I was reflecting on this. <clears throat> arguably, the greatest cause for mistrust arguably the greatest cause for mistrust in this world is that nothing is ever deemed perfectly good anymore. Even God's goodness has been put on trial, hasn't it? What do you think happens to creatures who were literally designed to abide by this when they go, 
All hell breaks loose. There's no more authority. Everybody's their own authority. Isn't that what we're taught nowadays in, in, in elementary school and on? Isn't that what the world's trying to teach you? Isn't that what you see in media? Be your own authority. I mean, it's gotten so bad, people are shooting up churches. People are shooting at cops. People are filming cops, every, trying to make the law-abiding you know, law police forces and all this kind of stuff, which is the vast majority of people look like crap. It's all about anti-authority. That's what I keep saying. That's why the word teshuka always comes up. It's not just about women. It's about what sin wants to do in this world. It wants to lord over. It wants to say no to the established authorities, the ones that God ordained because God has, so says the word of God, ordained every authority in our lives. Some of you say, that's so distasteful. Well, take it up with God. He's the perfect one. Not you. So if there's a distaste, distaste in your mouth, it's because you chewed on, I don't know, your own flesh. Oh, sorry, is that too graphic? You know what I'm saying? It's not God. God God's perfect. His word is succulent. It's perfect. No bad taste. Any bad taste in your mouth is from you. So it's an interesting phenomenon as of late because nothing's ever good anymore. Nothing's perfectly good. In other words, anything that's actually put up as good, especially from a Christian church like this one, is immediately put on trial. Immediately put on trial. Oh, I see him. Come on there, Baldy. Let's see what you got. And they make it about the guy because, you know, I'm going to fail eventually. I'm just a human. Of course I'm going to fail. I've said ridiculous things behind the pulpit. I've said worse things in my own home. I'm going to say worse things probably tonight. I might watch a football game. I don't know. I'll probably be throwing stuff. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But that's between me and God. But any time anybody that stands up for Christ says, I'm going to hold this up for good. This is really good. The first thing the world does is put it on trial. Okay, everybody take their spotlights. Let's put that thing on trial. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Even God's on trial. God's goodness was never questioned before the fall. Put that into perspective. It wasn't until the serpent suggested it. Just think about that. His goodness was never questioned before the fall. It wasn't until the serpent suggested it. And once the man and the woman fell for the temptation to doubt God's perfect goodness, all hell broke loose. That's what happened. It wasn't until they were tempted. And you know what? It's the same old thing today. Just think about this and take this very personal. Think about your own lives right now, not the person to your left or your right, you. Think about your own life right now. When you rest in the perfect will of God, you sleep like a baby at night. Why? Because you can trust him. You have perfect trust in him. You say, oh, that's good. I don't care. You know, the world could blow up right now. I don't care. God's got my back. If he says he's got my back, He's got my back. And you sleep like a baby. However, 
Let the serpent of old haunt your mind by sowing doubts about God's perfect will for you, and all bets are off. All bets are off. That's why you've got to be careful who you hang with. You have to be careful who you hang with, because there are a lot of ideas. They are the antithesis of what's in this book. All of a sudden, you're miserable, malcontent with life, searching for answers in places other than the Word of God. You stop reading your Bible, if you ever started. You stop paying attention to your pastor, if you ever did. You stop reading the blogs, etc., if you ever did. All because you got duped by the oldest trick in the book. You got duped by the oldest trick in the book up here on the board. The oldest trick, the oldest trick in the book literally is the one that the first two humans fell for in the garden. Question God's perfect goodness, his veracity, his inability to lie, his loving kindness, his truth. Question that. Is he really doing all this for you? Is he doing it to protect something he doesn't want you to know? Is he really good? Because if he was really good, he would tell you all this. He just doesn't want you to know the whole story. What does that say? God's really not good? God doesn't know what's best for his own creatures? That's the oldest trick in the book. Are you really happy in your marriage? Are you really blessed at work? Do you really think you should um, obey your parents, your teachers, your government officials, you know, all the authorities that God put in your life? Do you really think that's necessary? Is it really good to obey? Or should you learn to quote, unquote, Think for yourself, and I hope you know where the line in the sand is. It's not about being a oh, we, oh, you know. This is about what this says and obeying what's in this book. Is it really good to obey God? Is He really good enough to take care of everything like He says He does in the Bible? As soon as you start questioning Him, you fell for the oldest trick in the book. You literally did. You literally fell. Doesn't, don't you just hear it? Did he really say? What did he really say? The old serpent of old. And sometimes those serpents, boy, they have the longest eyelashes and the prettiest hair. Or whatever you girls like. You might say to yourself, I never do that. Never do that. I never forget. I never fall for that trick. But you'd be lying to yourself. We all do it. More often than we know, or than we know. Or shall I say, more often than we realize, because it really is a function of humility or arrogance. An arrogant person knows and is dismissive. A humble person adjusts once they realize their sin. 
For example, here are just some ways that we fall for the oldest trick in the book. We grope for self-made blessings. This is one of my favorites. I'm so blessed out. Really? God gave you that? God gave you that seriously? Huh. We grope for self-made, quote, blessings instead of waiting on God's timing. That's one of my favorites because everybody in here has a problem with patience. Is that fair? Who has perfect patience here? No one. You know who does? God, thank God, because we're idiots, and we test his patience all the time. Imagine if we were God, we'd all be in hell. <laughs> Somehow we'd be beat up in a corner somewhere. I told you! <laughs> so we grope for self-made blessings. God's not hearing my prayer. I prayed three nights in a row. He didn't answer. I'm going to take it upon myself. That's, that's my answer. I'm going to go manufacture said blessing. I'm going to go steal something. But I know that God really wants me to have a brand new Mustang. So I'm going to go steal one right off the lot. And I'm going to say, God, it was the weirdest thing because when I showed up, right, I had my Jimmy stick and everything, and it was open, and the keys were in it. It was like God was saying, take it. I don't know. Well, I don't know. You tell me what you sick people do. Usually it has something to do with money. Money or relationships. I don't want to get into a relationship one because I can get hairy. But we grope for self-made blessings instead of waiting on God's timing. We willfully disobey the word. This is falling for the oldest trick in the book, mind you. Don't trust in God. Put God on trial. Do I really have to obey that? It seems ridiculous right about now. Yeah. Yeah. No sex before marriage. Oh, for real? Come on. Seriously? Isn't that like an ancient thing? Isn't that for like David and those guys and all those, whatever? Start naming like random, you know, people. No. Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't want you screwing up your life by having sex outside of marriage. So he says, how about you don't have sex outside of marriage? And this isn't about, look, folks, people. And I hope you realize, I, I picked on smoking on Sunday, I think, right? And something else, like, I was thinking about, like, girls' handbags, I think, at the time. Like, you know, little uh, coach and all these ridiculous things. But it's not about that. It's about a person's heart. It's not about picking on one particular sin. It's about, look, are you surrendered to the Lord? I don't care what the sin is. I don't even care if you're a homosexual. What take, choose your poison. Are you or are you not surrendered to him? That is the question. You can choose your poison because we all have our favorites. The key issue is are you or are you not surrendered to the Lord? Because if you're not, you just bought the oldest trick in the book. Must not be good to obey him. Must not be good to surrender to the Lord. So I'm going to disobey. How about we, quote, justify ungodliness by perverting primary colors? And I'm just borrowing it for the, to save space. Meaning, we justify ungodliness by perverting something as fundamental as the gospel. 
We water it down somehow. Or we add to it even. There's two things you can do, right? You can either water it down or you can add to it. And then we justify it. And then here's the kicker. We premeditate all of it. We premeditate. That's how calculating we are. I love the deer in the headlights. Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm in this situation. How did that happen? <laughs> what do you mean how to happen? We've been premeditating it for six months. What do you expect to happen? You've been on this train for, for a year. Who the hell are we talking about here? Seriously. Does that make you laugh? Like, we're the worst. We premeditate. We go, oh, my God, I never expected that to happen. It just happened. It just happened because you went, okay, A, B, C, D, 3. And you line up all these things just like dominoes. And you just went, oh, my God, did you see it? I was, like, nowhere near it. I was over here. It, was over it just happened in my life. The whole thing's premeditated. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> but these are the things we do. Why? Because we fell for the oldest trick in the book. Don't trust God. Put God on trial. Remember, the oldest trick is to put God on trial. That's the problem. Stop it. Stop doing that in your own life. Stop putting God on trial. A person who doesn't question God won't ever grope for blessings. They'll be like Paul. I learned to go with, I learned to go without. Both ways, I'm happy. I'm good. That's what Paul, I just had a bug fly up my nose. <laughs> I'm sorry to have to rock it on stage, but. Probably like a demon-possessed bug, right? <laughs> you know it is, right? He's like, we'll get him, we'll get him. Right? Like Beetlejuice. Not that I've ever seen it. A person who doesn't question God won't ever grope for blessings. Do you understand? Give it to me, take it away. Like Job said, Lord, give it to the Lord, take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That's the attitude of a disciple of Christ. That's what it means to surrender oneself. That's what it means to... Um, Lose the self-life for the sake of Christ. A person who doesn't question God won't ever grope for blessings or disobey God's commands or justify ungodly gospels or justification or sanctification or premedita premeditate any of this just to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. On Sunday and Tuesday... The Spirit made us think very practically about our own lives, and I love it when He does it. It's convicting, but it's so beautiful because He never lets us off the hook, and that's exactly what we want. Otherwise, we'd be what James would say, right? We wouldn't be doers. We'd be merely hearers who delude themselves. So on Sunday, He made us think practically about our lives, and Tuesday, why? Because it's very easy to become ensnared in the lies of the devil. And that's the thread, right? What's good? Well, what do you think is good? Is it oriented to the Bible? Is it biblically based, or is it something you manufactured to satisfy some lust of your flesh? And then when you get bagged, when someone calls you out, or the Bible calls you out, you go, oh, I never knew. Really? You never knew. 
Your pastor's been turning purple on, on the pulpit, <laughs> saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, and you're doing what? What are you doing? We are literally enveloped in evil, my friends. I know that sounds dire, but it's not, because we're already victorious. We already are given true blessings in Christ Jesus. We already are enjoying eternal life in time. We already have been given faith that saves, not just once, but daily. We have blessings that are far beyond anything in this world, any boundaries of this world. And we have to remember that. So just saying this out loud that we're literally enveloped in evil, that doesn't bother me one iota. Not at all. And the moment, but here's the thing, the moment we begin thinking otherwise is the moment we need to stop and listen to these messages again. Because that's what the Spirit's trying to say. Don't take these messages passively. God being perfect and having expressed Himself without error, perfectly through the inspired Word of God, stated the following as a warning. Go to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. God being perfect and having expressed Himself without ever error, perfectly, through the inspired Word of God, recorded this. Second Timothy 3.1 But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. There you go. How about that? What? Yeah, haters of good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, there's your counterfeit, holding to something that's imperfect, imperfectly warranted, if you would, holding to a form of godliness. It looks like the real deal, but it's not. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, the context, obviously, in context was, um, or in, uh, excuse me, the context is that Paul was writing about false teachers at the time. And it's not like we don't have false teachers today. I mean, come on. Avoid such men as these up here on the board. Just as a side note, everybody's like, yeah, avoid them, they're evil. Just go like this. Ready? Slow motion. Pick up a mirror. Oh! <laughs> Make sure you aren't the, one of the men in question. I'm serious. Scott. This warning may be to your new self as you look in the mirror. Make sure you're not one of those men or women. Make sure you're not a stumbling. So ask yourself right now. When's the last time you made another person stumble? You. Everybody likes to point fingers. Yeah, avoid him. Avoid men such as these. Him over there. He's, he's awful because he makes me stumble all the time. Well, maybe the roles, maybe you're the one people are pointing at. When's the last time you made another person stumble? 
chances are it wasn't that long ago. Maybe you were being self-absorbed or selfish or egocentric or just plain arrogant. Or maybe you said something insensitive or mean or purposely hurtful. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? These aren't novel concepts either, so, you know, relax, I guess. Suffice to say that Job understood the point being made here. Go to Job 20, verse 12. Job 20, verse 12. Ever had a hidden agenda? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> you're sick. Because <laughs> you're all sick and manipulative and wretched. Oh, hey, honey. What do you say we do this? Oh, look at that. Look who's here. Why are you guys looking at me funny? That's how I talk at home. You guys thought it was Tammy, huh? Job 20, verse 12, though evil is sweet in his, the wicked man's in view, though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth, yet his food is in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. Ooh, that's tough language, isn't it? Yeah, that's a wicked man. Have you ever been wicked? I have. I've certainly hid things under my I've certainly hidden things in my belly waiting to vomit them out on somebody. Seriously. W waiting, premeditating something terrible. Oh, wait till I get a hold of that guy. I got I got some words for them. Oh, that's really going to build up Christ. Yeah. That's really going to show the love of Christ when you when you, you know, barrel bottom into someone's face and bring up some ancient issue or some wrong or something that I've failed to forgive them of. I don't know. Yeah, that's really going to, really going to help things out next time you try to evangelize them. Think about the things that you carry around, the um, unforgiveness, the sourness in your bellies, the things that, you know, when someone's name comes up, it twists your stomach. Think about that. There's something still there, isn't there? There's something still chewing at you that you haven't been delivered from yet. And so there's a certain wickedness there even, even in you, even though they could have been the biggest jackass to ever walk the face of the planet. That is not the point. The point is you're supposed to forgive. You're supposed to be here for the gospel. You're supposed to have the heart of Christ who died for you knowing and feeling and sensing all of your stupid sins. How, it's unbelievable the things we do. Oh, can you believe that? How could you possibly forgive that person? And I sit there and I say, how the heck can Jesus Christ possibly forgive you, you rotten person? What do you mean, how can I forgive that person? Because I want to reconcile. I want to be... I want to forgive for my own freedom, nonetheless. I don't want to carry around venom ready to spew out. I don't want to carry deceit and wickedness under my tongue 
ready and pounced and ready. You know, all the tongue is in the Bible. It's worse than any weapon of war. I don't want to try to destroy somebody. I don't want to tear somebody down. I don't want to do those things. Do I do them? Sometimes, yeah, because I'm sick just like you guys are. But I don't want to. You understand? The point is that we need to evaluate and discern. Why don't I want to, by the way? Because I want to surrender to the Lord. That's why. The point is that we need to evaluate and discern our lives daily, but we must first trust fully and implicitly the Word of God. Again, and I'm out of time. Where do you go? I mean, seriously, where do you go from here? If this is just a waif, if this is just, you know, give or take, this is cool, you know, I don't know what to do. I wouldn't know where to go. Honest to goodness, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be, I'd be so lost, I'd be like, you know, just wandering the earth like Cain. Kung Fu, nobody? What do you do without bearings, without this? Where do you go? That's the point. So we must first trust fully and implicitly the Word of God and not spend any time trying to wiggle our way out of what the Bible states as clearly righteous or unrighteous. For how can we say we trust in what is good if our actions consistently speak otherwise? Hence, and I think I'll end here, our recurring theme in this series, and I think it's a good place to stop because it sort of pulls in the first three lessons. The good litmus test. You know, we're seeking what is good. Well, the Spirit's saying, I'm telling you where to look. There's only one place to look. Don't look around, because people fail all the time, but God never fails. The good litmus test, it is very sobering, isn't it, to analyze our own definitions for good. And I hope you have all taken this on as a personal challenge. Like, what do you say is good in your life? Seriously, what do you call good? What do you live by? What are you motivated by? I mean, we're usually motivated by um, good, right? I mean, that's good, so I'm going to go do it. And I'm motivated, conversely, if that's bad, I'm going to avoid doing that. I mean, isn't that how basically, fundamentally, our conscience works even? Like, I'm going to go do something good and avoid bad things. Well, what happens if those things are reversed, like Isaiah 5.8? If those things are reversed, good is evil and evil is good, what happens? You're all mixed up. You don't know what to do. One day you're going in this direction, the next day you're going in that direction. Why would you ever go towards something evil? Because you think it's good. And woe to that person who has those things mixed up. And why would you have them mixed up? Because your brain, your mind, your heart is not based on this. Somewhere along the line, you either didn't learn it, or you forgot it, or you just discarded it, or you didn't listen, or, you know. I mean, we know that God won't give us more than we can handle in terms of temptation. So it is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. We might quickly realize that what we think and even act upon as good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem and celebrate in ourselves and others. That's where I'll leave you. What do you esteem and what do you celebrate in yourself and others? What do you hold up? I can tell you this from experience, my friends. You hold up something godly and good, one of the 
first thing that happens is all the spotlights are on you. All of a sudden, everybody's challenging you. You hold yourself up in an ungodly manner, and guess what the world does? Yeah, they cheer you on. So let me just put this in perspective. I'm not saying cot blanc every time. If you're being held up right now by the world, chances are you're reversed. If the world thinks so highly of you and just wants to celebrate you because of what you are in this world, you have a lot of thinking to do. That's what I'm telling you. That's what the Word of God says. Be very careful what you're esteeming and celebrating in yourself and others, and also, conversely, what you're being esteemed uh, for from others. Don't let that drag you in, because that's a huge temptation as well. Amen? I'll bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to break bread together as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for saving us daily, sanctifying us, someday glorifying us. Thank you for the hope that is in those very words, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.